This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honours the often underappreciated by the masses work of characters. My name is Stephen Quartzio. My name is Andrew Carroll. Today we are talking about the brilliant Oscar winner, Holly Hunter. Andrew, run down her history. Holly Hunter was born in Conyers, Georgia in 1958. She began acting in high school and received a degree in drama from Carnegie Mellon University. She moved to New York City and lived with fellow Academy Award winner Frances McDormand. After her first role in the 1981 slasher film The Burning, Hunter moved to LA and had roles on TV and in Jonathan Demme's Swing Shift. Her big break came in 1987 when the Coen brothers cast her as Ed McDonough in Raising Arizona. The same year, Hunter was nominated for the Best Actress Oscar for a role in James L. Brooks's Broadcast News. Hunter was nominated twice in the same year at the 1993 Oscars for her supporting role in Sidney Pollack's The Firm and for Best Actress in Jane Campion's The Piano, which she won. She collaborated with the Coens again in their riff on Homer's Odyssey, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? She was again nominated for Best Supporting Actress at the Oscars and Golden Globes for her role as a worried mother in the Brittany Murphy vehicle 13. In 2004, she voiced Helen Parr, aka a last girl in The Incredibles, a role she would return to 14 years later for the sequel. She starred in and executive produced the TV show Saving Grace from 2007 to 2010, for which she was nominated for an Enemy, Screen Actors Guild Award, and a Golden Globe. More recent roles include Senator Finch in Batman vs Superman Dawn of Justice, uh, a role in The Big Sick, and Terence Maddox's Song to Song, and in the NBC comedy Mr. Mayor. Binging so much of her work in a short period of time, you realise how she's truly a chameleon in that she can play high status people like in broadcast news or in succession you know she can play low status like in raising arizona or the firm she can do comedies she can do deeply serious stuff like the piano or crash like you know she can be the lead she can be color and yet she's also very distinct in that like she has this very particular southern accent that sounds like no one else on earth but also you know she's tiny she's like five foot two but feels so big on screen and it was you who wanted to do her what, what are your thoughts on hunter I just think she's like you said she's just so distinctive like I remember seeing um, Raising Arizona for the first time and I've watched it like last year I think and I've watched it at least three times since then so um, I think that's what uh, pushed pushed me to do her to cover her even and um, like there's there, there is no one else like her yeah and uh, I have to say this might be the best set of movies I've watched for and I know that face in that it features two I think flawless comedies a very singular and strange art house movie that crossed over and became a mainstream hit and maybe the most prototypical solid Hollywood thriller in the firm and then a pivotal movie in one of my favourite directors David Cronenberg's career so yeah let's get into it we talked yeah. you, you mentioned Raising Arizona um, yeah, do you want to sure. run down the plot? Sure, Holly Hunter plays Edwina, or Ed McDonough, a cop who falls for Petty Robert, H.I. or Hi McDonough, who's played by Nicolas Cage. After marrying Hi and discovering uh, that she's infertile, the two decide to kidnap one of the new- newborn Arizona quintuplets, or Arizona quints, and raise them as their own. Hijinks galore ensue. <laughs> Which one you get? I don't know. Nathan Jr., I think. Give me here. There's the instructions. Oh, he's beautiful. Yeah, he's awful damn good. I think I got the best one. I bet they were all beautiful. All babies are beautiful. This one's awful damn good, though. Don't you cuss around him. He's fine, he is. I think it's Nathan Jr. We are doing the right thing, aren't we, Hi? I mean, they had more than they could handle. Well, now, honey, we've been over this and over this, and there's what's right, and there's what's right, and never the twain shall meet. But don't you think his mama will be upset? I mean, overly? Well, of course she'll be upset, sugar, but she'll get over it. She's got four little babies, almost as good as this one. It's like when I was robbing convenience stores. <laughs> I love him so much. I know you do, honey. I love him so much. I know you do. Yeah, this movie is a perfect comedy to me. I, I love how every character talks in such an incredible, you know, flowery manner. Like, their characters in, like, a William Faulkner story. <laughs> and they have the yeah. thick southern drawls to match and the, the heightened, playful dialogue. And yet they're kind of idiots. <laughs> like, there's that amazing line where Hunter's character says to John Goodman and William Forsythe, like, characters, you know, you busted out of jail? And one of them says, like, no, ma'am, we released ourselves of our own recognizance. And then the other adds, we felt the institution no longer had anything to offer. <laughs> or you know when Cage's character um, is narrating and he's talking about how Edwina how Hunter's character kind of kids and he says Edwina's insides were a rocky place where my seed could find no purchase <laughs> yeah what, what do you think of Raising 
has on it. It's my favorite Coen Brothers movie. Um, oh, yeah, I know that's a that's a controversial take, but I think having seen almost all of them with only like Llewellyn Davis left to watch, I think um, I think Raising Arizona has uh, netted that trophy because it's basically a live a live action cartoon. It's like everyone on during the wedding scene, everyone on Ed's side is a police officer, everyone on high is just dressed in Hawaiian shirts. Yeah. There's uh, this desperate kind of that feels like a live action Looney Tunes short where Nicolas Cage is like gathering up all the babies as he's trying to just kidnap one and they keep escaping from their cribs and all their, their names are like Larry, Barry, Harry, Gary, and Nathan Jr. <laughs> um, um, and then you have like is it the the enormous biker played by I think it's Randall Tex Cobb I think his name is or it's yeah. something like that yeah uh, who's just like some kind of Harley Davidson riding Tasmanian devil and then there's like John Goodman and William Forsythe's like wacky side adventures involving the baby all the yodeling on the soundtrack and then there's just this this insane like five six seven minute long chase sequence that's just about Nicolas Cage trying to steal diapers. Yeah, and then the, when he's running away with the diapers, the cop shoots, and it shoots the diapers out of his hand. <laughs> it feels very Looney Tunes. Yeah, and uh, I just think the Cumberlands have such a great ear for dialects and accents, and you know how they can be part of the overall tone of a movie, and uh, later they're going to make Fargo, where that upbeat, you know, Minnesota, like, hey, their accent yeah. is ju- juxtaposed with people being thrown into wood chippers, and, and I think they're similarly experimenting here and having that very antiquated southern, almost novelistic way of speaking. These were the salad days, uh, in contrast with, you know, what is, like, a Looney Tunes cartoon, like, Nicolas Cage's hair gets bigger the more stressed he is, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, babies are thrown off the roofs of cars and are fine <laughs> it's great yeah what do you think of hunter in the movie this is something i realized when i was watching him when i thought about this and watched broadcast news i think she's one of the best criers in the business yeah <laughs> especially when it comes to comedy i love him um, so much <laughs> yeah she's just bawling it's like watching a like bugs bunny cry it's like if there were massive splashes of tears coming out of her eyes in that moment it would feel authentic because she's just so good at it yeah. I think she's kind of a not necessarily a grounding force in the film this uh, film is kind of like up in the air for a lot of it considering how crazy it is she insists on following through with the kidnapping but she also insists on following through with like parenting Nathan Jr. and eventually returning him and I think like it shows how how much more responsible she is and how much of an inspiration she is to her husband who is um, desperate to get out of this life of crime and uh unwilling to go back to uh, a jail where the uh, custodial staff just hiss at him or he'll be stuck in a bed with uh, a man who says that when they were too poor to find like uh, rice or beans to eat they ate sand <laughs> we ate sand yeah, we ate sand <laughs> yeah it's hard to out crazy cage to say he's a man who enjoys going a bit big is, is an understatement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yet I'd argue Hunter is on his level and is maybe even surpassing him. Because as you said, there's that hilarious scene where Cage and her are driving after stealing Nathan Jr. And they're they're trying to reassure themselves they're doing the right thing. And out of nowhere, she just starts weeping and shouting about the baby she just met 30 seconds ago. I love him so much! <laughs> she keeps on saying it over and over again. And she goes from like 0 to 100 in a second. And it's so funny. And you can actually see Cage being taken aback. Like he goes like, whoa, <laughs> you know, like it's almost too big for him. And then there's yeah. that other amazing scene uh, um, is when Cage goes back to robbing convenience stores and Hunter's character rescues him from the cops, the gun wielding cashier and the vicious dog chasing him, which is another great thing about this movie. There's like almost Rude Goldberg-esque set pieces where it's just <laughs> them like stacking the deck on top of like, how crazier can we make this? But the minute she gets into the car, she punches him and she says like, she's talking about like, you can't, you can't rob things. Yeah, we have a family now. And she goes, we got a chat now. Everything's changed. And she says she elongates changed and makes the greatest face. It's so funny. Like she's just a force of nature. But then, like as you said, like you know, she's playing this big character who's a bit of a caricature. You know, she's the police officer is very bossy, and the whole point of them, the whole plot of the movie is kickstarted by her strong arming Cage's character into robbing this baby. And yet, not only do you like her despite these things, but you sort of do understand the intense pain she feels at not being able to have kids and that powerful yearning to be a mother and. It serves as the sort of emotional bedrock for the movie. You know, there's something human at the center of all this 
you know wackiness and yeah i think then towards the end of the movie you know when she has that monologue about feeling like she betrayed the police and her own morals by stealing nathan jr and she feels guilty and as you said the best crier you know tears are swelling in her eyes you really believe it and in a lot of other comedies i don't think stopping the jokes and the energetic pace for a serious scene would work but it does here because it makes you realize how emotionally invested you are in edwina and yeah the relationship yeah. with hi you know i think you're right about the the movie just kind of hitting that barrier of, you know, the jokes stop and everything gets kind of serious for a second. Because it just continues in that way for quite a while, for the last 10 minutes of the movie. And this is like a pretty, it's a, it's a very short, it's a, I think it might be under or over 90 minutes, but not far off either, either side of that marker. Because um, obviously they give Nathan Jr. back and uh, they're caught by um, Nathan Jr.'s father. And he gives this, then this really emotional speech and uh, about how they just have to you know stick it through the pain until medical science catches up with them and then it transitions into like Nicolas Cage's narration about how he has a dream of um, this wonderful fantasy life him and Ed have built together with lots of ch- kids and grandkids and it fades out on them sitting at the head of a table full of their children and it's it's just so different and so highly emotional and so funny and so hopeful for a Coen Brothers movie which I think is probably the real reasons why I like it so much because it's just so far removed it's basically in a almost another universe from a lot of their other movies yeah and they, they'd said specifically that after making because Raising Arizona is their second movie and they said that after their debut Blood Simple which is this very mean and lean and kind of nasty thriller that they wanted to do something that was totally different and um like, I, you could just even see that in, like, yeah, as you said, like, the yodeling, the soundtrack, the kind of light tone of Raising Arizona, um, that they really wanted to like, prove their comedic chops. Yeah, and they did. Yeah, and they certainly did. Do you want to um, hit, while we're talking Cohen's, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Sure, yeah. I got news for you, in case you hadn't noticed, I wasn't hit by a train. And I have traveled many a weary mile to be back with my wife... Six dollars. Seven, Daddy. That ain't your daddy, Alvinel. Your daddy was hit by a train. Now, Penny, you stop that. No, you stop it. Vernon here's got a job. Vernon's got prospects. He's bona fide. What are you? I'll tell you what I am. I'm the pedophilias, and you can't marry him. Why can't I am and I will? Tomorrow. I gotta think about the little Warby gals. They look to me for answers. Vernon can support them and buy them lessons on the clarinet. The only good thing you ever did for the gals was to get hit by that train. Well, you lying, unconstant, succubus. Whoa, whoa, whoa! You can't swear at my fiance. Oh yeah. Well, you can't marry my wife. So Holly Hunter plays Peggy Warvey McGill, the wife of Ulysses Everett McGill, who is played by George Clooney. And Peggy is sick of her ex-husband, of her husband's frequent absences and trouble with the law, and intends to marry another man for some stability and security. Everett con- convinces his chain gang friends Pete, who is played by John Turturro, and Delmar O'Donnell, who is played by Tim Blake Nelson, to escape the chain gang with the promise of treasure so that he can stop Peggy from marrying a different man. So it's a much smaller role compared to that of Ed in Raising Arizona, but no less impactful. It's pretty clear that Peggy is the only man capable of, like, not necessarily resisting Everett's charms, but of putting up um, a real defence against them, uh, even though it's very clear that she loves him very much, despite his foolishness. And like, she's a woman in a long line of female characters in the Coen's films who have like a sharp, snappy, and brassy way of speaking. Oh Brother, Where Art Thou is based on Homer's Odyssey. It's funny to compare um, Peggy to Penelope, who was Odysseus's wife in the Odyssey. So if Everett is, uh, is Odysseus, uh, Peggy is Penelope. Penelope is doing whatever she can to delay picking a new suitor, um, while Peggy is desperate for stability and security and can't get married quick enough because she has daughters to look after and her good-for-nothing husband is off on a tr- some foolhardy treasure hunt somewhere and recording songs like this as uh, one of the members of the Soggy Bottom Boys. Um, and Penelope is overjoyed when Odysseus comes home and helps him slaughter all her suitors, whereas Peggy is more irritated than anything else whenever it shows up with two other complete idiots in tow. And with that said, it's obvious that Peggy and Everett love each other uh, through the way they interact. And Peggy sets very, sets, clearly sets very high standards for her husband in that like, he comes back and, you know, everything seems like it's just uh, like it's coming to a happy ending. And then she insists that he get uh, her wedding ring back from a dresser in, in their house in a valley, which is about to be flooded. 
so he drags uh, Pete and Delmar uh, to help him but uh, I think further hijinks ensue there I won't spoil what happens um, and it's clear that like Everett really wants to jump as high as he can to reach them even if that does involve getting uh, caught in a burst dam and she much like Ed uh, or more than Ed even she's a, a grounded and more sensible presence in this uh, film full of wacky hijinks and comedy yeah. do you want to talk about broadcast news then sure New car Jane Craig, just a minute, then we're going to go to Martin Kleinich State for the message from Libya. Then you're going to have the carrier pilot from the Sidra in time to... What? No! You missed him! We only have ten minutes left. How can you talk to me about parking problems? No! Not your try. You'll do it! Do it! Or I'll fry your fat ass still. Goodbye! I had no idea she was this good. I can run down the plot I have it here. Go for it. Um, yeah, you're the journalist here, Stephen. I'll exactly, and the, it's going to be a lot of talk about journalism. <laughs> Hardworking network news producer Jane Craig, played by Holly Hunter, falls for new reporter Tom Grunick, a dashing William Hurt, he's played by, who's uh, this pretty boy who represents the trend towards entertainment news uh, she despises. And then there's also Aaron Altman, who's played by Albert Brooks, um, a talented but more plain correspondent who carries this uh, unrequited torch and love for Jane. And you know, sparks fly between the three as the network prepares for big changes and both the news and Jane must decide between uh, style and substance and yeah again I think like like Raising Arizona this is another flawless comedy to me starring Holly Hunter and uh, I could be in the back for this because I'm a journalist and uh, you know I spent time in newsrooms and not only am I interested in what this movie is about but I also think broadcast news is a very authentic and sharp depiction of journalism and journalists and now I should say I've mostly worked in print journalism and this is about broadcast news but there's that amazing scene with uh, John Cusack where they have one minute to get this news package ready for broadcast and they're panicking and rushing and they get it out with just a few seconds to spare. And I think it's one of those great scenes that just shows how a profession works and yeah. you, you just has the energy of that, that of like authenticity. And I think it perfectly captures how hard but also thrilling reporting on a breaking news story is. And I think the movie's filled with these great details like that. And, you know, like, journalism is not exactly, you know, working in a mind. It's not the toughest job in the world. But it is a job where you have to be constantly thinking and you have to be constantly moving and working, you know, looking for stories, sourcing info, making sure your details are correct and the information is presented in a clear manner. And it can be incredibly tiring for your brain so that oftentimes when you finish, like, a particularly hectic shift, you're you're kind of a mess. <laughs> and you carry that stress home with you. And I, I love how Hunter's character early on schedules time to cry after this cathartic <laughs> release and then once that's purged you know she goes back to normal that that feels like a detail adrian that's told the writer director james l brooks then there's the other side of the coin where albert brooks's character is just obsessed with the news to the extent that he can't enjoy his day off um, there's that scene where you see him try to enjoy his afternoon and he's drinking cocktails but he just can't help but turn on the news and call into hunter at the station to help her out and i've seen people like that too like journalists who just you know can't switch off and then, um, you know, William Hurt's character, who is starting out in hard journalism, hard news journalism for the first time after coming from sports, uh, him feeling like a bit of a phony because he just doesn't have the wealth of knowledge um, someone like Albert Brooks's character has. Like, I believe a lot of journalists feel like that when they're starting off. So there's so much to kind of, you really empathize with all the characters. But I also think that what the movie is about, you know, like this clash between unobjective straight news and then that more kind of sensationalist, more emotional news and maybe more manipulative news. Uh, in which the reporter inserts themselves into the story. Uh, I think that's still an interesting b- debate the industry is having, and maybe even more now with the rise of the internet and citizen journalism, like anyone can kind of be a journalist now. And I think the genius thing this movie does is de- debate the merit of those two styles through this very fun and sexy love triangle at the mm. center of the movie, with Hunter being the sort of editor or producer, Albert Brooks embodying that, old-fashioned classical journalist and Hurt being the more flashy new type that's more charismatic and I just think this movie is just so funny and filled with so many gem lines like Albert Brooks saying wouldn't this be a great world if insecurity and desperation made us more attractive what if needy were a turn-on so good yeah do you find Albert Brooks sexy (laughs) I find it sexy when characters have sort of a rich internal history. There's so many scenes of them just kind of touching each other and kind of holding each other, not in the, like in a familiar way. I'll admit, I'll admit, I find him sexy, sexy when he plays uh, Hank Scorpio in The Simpsons, or um, the, the bad guy in Drive. Yeah, or the bad guy in The Simpsons movie. Yeah. <laughs> Has he ever played a decent man? Because he's a prick in this, and uh, 
he's uh, Hank Scorpio and Bernie from Drive as well. So I don't know if I've ever seen him play a really a genuinely decent person. Oh, I think I think he's has a heart. I think he's a nice. This. I think he's like at his at heart, he's a decent person in this. He's just a bit of a he's, prick. He's very. He's a bit of a hedgehog. There's yeah. even that scene where William Hurt is like, "I'm gonna miss you. You're kind of a prick. Sorry." And I think Albert Brooks is like, "No, no, I kind of like the way that sounded." <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I really like this movie. Um, I think I think it's very hard um, as a love triangle movie to figure out who you want. I yeah. suppose either person to uh, any of the people to end up with, or who you want Holly Hunter to end up with. It's not like there's, it's like it's not this bisexual love triangle. Um, and I think the movie makes the right decision in the end, mm. uh, even if uh, I think it's definitely something that had people talking and still has people talking when they left the theaters in 1987 and when they turn it off today. And I think Holly Hunter is really good as this woman who just suffers from daily emotional breakdowns like crying uncontrollably in like her hotel room her desk or in a rebel base this is what this is the specific moment in the movie that i really loved all these moments serve to intensify our sympathy for jane and also highlight how funny they are that this woman just schedules time to cry (laughs) and whether in the morning or in the evening or whenever and but they also emphasize the deciding factor in the central love triangle like Mm, yes uh, you know there's three choices uh Jane has, you know, she can continue pursuing her career, she can go off with um, Tom, William Hurt, or she can um, go off with Aaron. And like I said, I think she makes the right decision in the end. So she's watching this tape, and I won't spoil it, um, but uh, she doesn't break down in tears like she does at so many other points points in the movies. It's It's her struggle not to cry that's really affecting. Like, you can see the battle playing out in her head and on her face between her her journalistic ethics and her love for her career and the love for the person she has who's on the tape breaking uh, their own journalistic ethics essentially and um, whether she cries or not it doesn't matter I've said all this before about other actors but it's about the incredible way Jane's emotions are communicated by Holly Hunter and it's not something just anyone can do and I think that's what I loved most of it I love the whole movie but I love that the most and it's very interesting that at the beginning of the movie, we see her sort of take time away from her work to cry. And then the reason that her and William Hurt fall out is the fact that he brought those tears sort of into the news, mm. uh, which is one of those just great screenwriter details I like. Yeah, I just, I was speaking so much about journalism at the beginning because I think it's hard for an actor to be utterly convincing in a profession to people in that profession. And you, you always hear about industries like hitting out at actors for misrepresenting, you know, the workers in that industry. Uh, but I just think Hunter is perfect as her news producer. And like apparently Jane Craig was bay- inspired by a real CBS news producer. And before filming began, Holly Hunter spent time shadowing her to see how things worked in a real newsroom. And she also cut her hair into a bob style to resemble this real life person. And uh, I just think Hunter reads as intelligent and authoritative, but also conveys just the right amount of mania as her character works under such tight deadlines. Like you really believe when she's like barking orders at people. But then I also think she kind of expertly conveys the burden her intelligence and her job has in her private life. She can't help but overanalyze things. I think there's that great scene where someone asks her at the party, like, it must be nice to always believe you know better, to always think you're the smartest person in the room. And she says, no, it's awful. Yeah. (laughs) Which is great. And um, I just think she has excellent chemistry with the two very different lead male characters. Like her and Albert Brooks, as I said, they're so tender with each other. Whereas with her, it's more fiery passion. I think she sells the conflict she has between choosing between those two people and what they both represent really well throughout the movie yeah yeah great film and uh, I, I'm not sure about Oprah the Wired Dale but I know that Raising Arizona and Broadcast News are both on Disney Plus now so people can check them out there you go uh, do you want to hit the firm sure I loved him I'm sorry Tammy I'm they wanted to know who hired him and why he was asking questions about dead lawyers. You actually saw them? Um, one guy was stocky, looked like a wrestler. He's going to live the rest of his life because Eddie hit him in the knee with that cannon under his desk. Um, other guy was like an albino. And long thin hair, almost white, dead blue eyes. 
A landlady said they came looking for me yesterday, so I checked in the Motel 6 on River Street. I couldn't think anywhere else to go. Listen, um, they're going to put Eddie together with Ray, and when they do, it'll lead to you. And I don't want anything bad to happen to you. Eddie wouldn't like it. So you're in as much trouble as I am. So, Holly Hunter plays Tammy Hemphill, the secretary to private detective Eddie Lomax, played by, uh, brief, briefly played by an insane Gary Busey, who was murdered after he was hired by Mitch McDear, who's played by Tom Cruise, to investigate mysterious deaths at Mitch's law firm Bendini, Lambert and Locke. Tammy takes over the case in order to get revenge over Lomax's death. So that's a very simplistic overview of this very tense, Incredibly suspenseful two and a half hour movie based on John Grisham's uh, novel The Firm. It's got this in- insane cast with Gene Hackman, Hal Holbrook, Ed Harris, David Strahern, Paul Sorvino, and bit parts for Tobin Bell, Jigsaw himself, and <laughs> Dean Norris, uh, Hank from Breaking Bad. And um, like when Tom Cruise is in a movie in like the 80s or 90s you, you know you're going you're gonna, you're getting the goods um, like there's, <laughs> TC. there's no there's no there's no mistakes like oblivion here and like you said it's like a, the pure hollywood thriller yeah like i'm not going to claim it's a masterpiece or anything like that like you know it's it's a little far fetched and it's not like yeah. reinventing the wheel but it's just it's, so it's very stretched out as well but it's so watchable yeah. and glossy and it's got this it's you know it looks so expensive there's these big stars it's got this attention crying premise that i love and i wish there was just more movies like this and i, I just think it's the perfect personification of the mid-budget hollywood film that was big in the 80s and 90s that just doesn't really come out in multiplexes anymore because mm. studios have begun to put so much emphasis on blockbusters and franchises you know which is very sad to me um this sort of a dearth of entertainment that's easily accessible to adults in theaters now yeah but what i love about holly hunter particularly in the firm is that it's like her character from raising arizona just stumbled into this john grisham pot boiler and and it's wonderful because the town the firm itself is based in is very hermetic like it's all these middle-aged or older wealthy white guys with perfectly coiffed hair who all speak the same way and all have wives that look the same and kids and it's all but stepford wivesy intentionally Mm. so i think to give that feeling of something not being right so when holly hunter comes in and starts doing her southern shtick and Gary Busey is doing his trademark you know manic motor mouth thing it's like mm. ah fresh air <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah the movie's only like two and a half hours long and you know Holly Hunter is on screen for a total of five minutes and 59 seconds and yet she managed to nab an Oscar nomination for best supporting actress and she deserves it because she leaves her own impression because like in her first big scene you know you can see she's trying to stay composed but she's you know scared shivering wrecked after watching her lover be shot to death and you know, in that moment, she just seems like she's going to be another person. The firm railroads over. Yeah. yeah, as the movie goes on, she shows herself to be incredibly resourceful. I mean, it's spoiling it. You know, Tom Cruise wouldn't be able to get out of the jam he's found himself in without her. And she's also got this rich internal life where it's implied her and her husband, who's an Elvis impersonator, who <laughs> winds up playing a small role in Cruise's plan. It's implied she and him have an open relationship, <laughs> yeah. which is great. And... Um, it's just such a great character. When she gets a happy ending, you, you know, you punch the air. You know? what, yeah, do you, what do you I, think of Hunter in the film? I love her. I love the bit where she's uh, just tying back to her husband being an Elvis impersonator. She's like, I turned 19. I was too old for him. Which is <laughs> insane. And, or, like, there's, so, there's quite a few jokes about like having sex with like either underage or just, oh, just barely legal women. Like uh, Gary Busey has one where he's like, I went down for stage rape, but... Um, she was 16, but she looked 30. <laughs> yeah. like, why are you telling people this? <laughs> yeah, it's, ama- it's amazing what you could get away with in a script in the 90s. Yeah, I think she really sells the idea of loving Gary Busey. Because at his best, Busey was a man with like this raw, chaotic sexual energy, hindered only by his unfortunate brain damage and the insane lifestyle he continued to live after the motorcycle accident that gave him the brain damage. And I think it fits that a certain type of woman that type being Tammy, would find this kind of dangerous, kind of above-the-law man attractive, which kind of explains why she was married to a very fat Elvis impersonator as well. (laughs) So it kind of makes sense. But then again, it also fits that she plays for the very... for Ray McDear, played by a very mournful David Strahern, who also basically only has about five minutes of screen time, and most of that is behind a set of bars um, when he's talking to Tom Cruise or when he's trying to escape from the FBI. 
but he also has an air of danger because he's guilty of manslaughter and uh, but he also has that romantic world weariness that as Tammy presumably grows older um, would find more attractive than a fat Elvis impersonator or a dangerously unhinged private detective mm-hmm. uh, played by Gary Busey just the overall this movie is like very good at showing just how good John Grisham is at just this one thing and how adaptations of his work need a compelling director like, like Sidney Pollack and compelling actors like that massive list I just uh, read off. Hunter is one of the few cast members other than like Wilfred Brimley, I think, who is actually from the South. So her being in it adds like this air of realism and authenticity to a film that always that's always kind of threatening to shoot off into and eventually does, but it is grounded by like some really good character work that always it's always threatening to shoot off into far fetched plot mechanics. And I think her presence in it is um, kind of something that, despite her like, you know, her being this crazy kind of. Um, private detective's assistant um, really grounds the film in something approaching reality if not reality itself yeah well can I talk about the piano because yeah. the same year Hunter was nominated for best supporting actress at the Oscars for the firm she won best actress for the piano the voice you hear is not my speaking voice but my mind's voice I have not spoken since I was six years old no one knows what. Not even me. My father says it is a dark talent, and the day I take it into my head to stop breathing will be my last. Today he married me to a man I've not yet met. Soon my daughter and I shall join him in his own country. My husband said my muteness does not bother him. He writes, and hark this, God loves dumb creatures, so why not he? For good he had God's patience. For silence affects everyone in the end. The strange thing is, I don't think myself silent. That is because of my piano. I shall miss it on the journey. Set in the mid-19th century, the film focuses on Ada, who is played by Hunter, this uh, psychologically mute Scottish woman who travels to a remote part of New Zealand with her young daughter, played by Anna Paquin, who also won an Oscar for her performance too. I think she's the second youngest person to ever win an Oscar. After her arranged marriage to uh, a frontiersman. Um, while Ada's mute, um, she says early on in narration, I don't think myself silent, that, that is because of my piano. That's how she expresses herself. Her piano is like a fundamental part of her. And when she arrives on the coast in New Zealand, Sam Neill's immediately like nah that piano's too big we're not carrying it <laughs> it just leaves it on the beach and Ada's heartbroken you know she's devastated she immediately hates uh, Neil's character and um, Neil has a translator when dealing with Maoris played by Harvey Keitel and he sort of seems like the person who's gone native as they say like he's adopted some of the Maori traditions like tattooing his face and basically he somehow gets the piano and allows Ada to come to his house and play it with certain other conditions attached and so uh-huh. a love or more like a lust triangle ensues and um, yeah the piano's sort of like nothing else I've ever seen before I was explaining the plot to Charlene our editor and she was like that's what it's about <laughs> you know and you know if I had to describe it it feels partly like a Victorian novel in the vein of something like Jane Eyre because it's about a suppressed woman finding her place and some form of agency in the world and most of the characters are quite repressed it's about class too there's lots of bonnets and tight clothes and stuff <laughs> but it also feels lots of modest ripping is it Yes, but it, yeah, as I was saying, it's, it feels more kind of outwardly gothic as well because there's lots of sex, there's violence, you know, an axe comes into play at one point. You know, there's, there's also kind of slight hints of the supernatural. and But then also the historical New Zealand setting with its gorgeous sort of rugged wilderness in which European characters are struggling to adapt to, you know, it gives it its own unique flavor. There's just some unforgettable images in this film like Ada's baroque piano just abandoned on the beach or the waves crash against the shore and... Also making it feel very different uh, than other movies is that, um, you know, a woman, you know, Jane Campion directed it, who I think presents the material in a way I'm not quite sure a male director would, because I think she manages to find nuance in its, you know, central triangle of characters, because 
Well, Ada is oftentimes a victim of KTL's horniness. <laughs> like, and, Aren't we all? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <true>. <laughs> but KTL had a, you know, a big kind of nude 90s between this and Bad Lieutenant. Yeah, but she's a victim of KTL, but also more so, I think, Neil's character's kind of uncaring, unloving nature. You know, she, But she's more than just a victim, because Camping gives Ada a lot of power too. You know, oftentimes she's the more dominant person in those scenes with Kaitel. And, you know, she doesn't just sit down and, like, take Neil's shitty behavior. You know, she stands up for herself. And I also think the movie understands that Kaitel's character can be both lecherous and unpleasant, but also kind of capable of deep tenderness. While Neil's character isn't just pure evil, his behavior almost seems like it's a fear, you know, of having his masculinity threatened, of not fitting into society's convention. So he buys a wife, essentially. But then when she he, he she's not subservient to him, like, he can't handle it. And uh, yeah, she's excellent in the movie, um, Hunter. But I do think it's, it's yeah, while her Oscars deserved, like, I think she could have won Oscars for Broadcast News or Raising Arizona. And in a way, her piano award is sort of that typical Oscar thing in which the actor was in this punishing, serious movie and transformed for the part and did all these impressive things in preparation for it. And the Academy is like, you've suffered for the art, bravo. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. give her a clap. Um, what, what's crazy to me about Hunter winning for the piano is that it's a role in which she's stripped of what makes her so iconic, you know, her voice, because she's playing mm-hmm. this mute character. Uh, we only hear her voice at the beginning and ending of the film in narration that sort of bookends the film. And even then, she's doing a Scottish accent. But... What's amazing about her performance is that despite being deprived of her voice, you know, such an important tool for an actor, you always know what's going on in Ada's head, which is particularly impressive given the complex emotions and character dynamics at play in the piano. And it helps that Hunter has uh, this incredible child performer in Anna Paquin, um, you know, often working beside her, whose character translates Ada's sign language into verbal language, you know. But oftentimes in the more emotionally fraught scenes, it's just her on her own or her with Kaitel and Neil and the camera's just lingering on her face and you totally understand everything that's going through her head and it's it's hypnotic to watch yeah i think there's no greater example of that than when she's earned back her piano from kaitel as part of their agreement and while earlier in the movie we've seen the euphoria she has from playing this time it's not the same because she's missing kaitel watching her and it's just a masterclass and sort of understatement like there's no words in the scene and then you couple that with just how vulnerable Hunter has to be in the film, both you know emotionally and physically. Like as I said, there's a lot of nudity in this movie, particularly Kaitel. <laughs> it really goes for it. Um, but Hunter um, also played most of the piano sequences herself and helped develop a form of sign language because there was no American sign language or British sign language at the time the movie was set in, and all that just adds to the authenticity of the film. And yeah, I think people should go check out this movie. It's not always an easy hang, but it's a fascinating movie, and it's just one that grows in your head after watching it. I can't wait to rewatch it, not cramming for a pod under <laughs> pressure, just for pleasure. And uh, it's hard as well to think of a movie in recent memory that's so peculiar and singular, you know, as an art house movie, becoming such a mainstream hit. It cost $7 million to make and made $140 million and then wow. won three Oscars. And Also, Hunter later reunited with Campion for her series Top of the Lake, which is amazing too, oh. and is on Netflix. I Know That Face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff Shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events and lots more. We here at I Know That Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc., all for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus fat per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything, all the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. I can hit Crash, too, if you want, before The Incredibles. Uh, yeah, go for it. Do you want a cigarette? No. I started to smoke at the hospital. Kind of stupid. Have you noticed that? Yes. 
the day I left the hospital, I had the extraordinary feeling that all these cars were gathering for some special reason I didn't understand. There seemed to be ten times as much traffic. Yeah, this is a movie made by Brandon Cronenberg's dad, David Cronenberg, who actually used to make movies too. Um, that's a joke. <laughs> Said no one ever. Um, based on a J.G. Ballard novel, uh, Crash Centers on a TV director named James, played by James Spader. Uh, he's in an open marriage with his detached wife, played by Deborah Cara Unger. After James gets into a serious car accident in which Holly Hunter's character Helen was in the other car uh, with the wreck leaving her husband dead, James and Helen discover and become members of an underground subculture of these scarred car crash victims who are sexually aroused by car crashes and the group is led by the great character actor uh, Elias Cotias. A character played by Elias Cotias, not Elias Cotias himself. Um, We've talked about it before on the podcast when we talked about Existence, but... All Cronenberg's movies are about change and transformation. You know, when we started, he started off in body horrors depicting, you know, physical transformations like in Shivers or Videodrome or The Fly, and then later transitioned to movies about psychological change like History of Violence and Eastern Promises. And in some ways, Crash feels like the perfect midpoint in that transition because on one level, it's uh, it's about, as Cotius's character explains, the reshaping of the human body by modern technology, which feels like, you know, classic Cronenberg, you know, love it. But really, I think... <laughs> Roger Ebert hit the nail on the head with this uh, in his review of Crash, where he said it's about how humans can grow enslaved by the particular things that turn us on and forgive ourselves our trespasses. And even Cotius's character says at one point, like he describes car crashes as a liberation of sexual energy and also a benevolent psychopathology that beckons towards us, which I think is more like the themes of modern Cronenberg movies. You know, while it's about cars, it's not really about cars. It's a it could be any niche fetish and how they can potentially become destructive. Yeah. And uh, I like this movie a lot. It's so unique. I love its ideas. It's maybe the most beautiful movie Cronenberg has ever made. Because there's not a lot of plot. It's kind of just a hangout movie. But Cronenberg shoots this unnamed city with loads of motorways. I think it was shot in Toronto uh, in a way that feels really dreamy. It has this kind of floaty score of the movie. There's this gliding camera work. There's lots of reflective surfaces in the motorway at night with, you know, the light of cars and traffic lights looking kind of hazy through the fog of exhaust pipes. Like, it's really beautiful. But I will say, though, it's a movie that's more making an academic point than trying to create authentic characters and make viewers emotionally invested in them it's quite icy and unemotional the dialogue like you know what i mentioned the kind of things quixote is saying in the movie can sometimes feel like it's ripped just from like a sociological study <laughs> and you know while i like spader in the movie you know like Kaitel, he's a man not afraid to get weird <laughs> his character feels like more of a cipher he, he's sort of a way of showing how your everyday man could potentially find himself entranced by some unusual sexual fetish after a couple of big early scenes, Hunter is not actually in Crash a lot. She sort of comes and goes throughout the movie. And I think if Cronenberg actually made her character, Helen, the lead character, and we saw her journey, you know, grieving over her husband while also growing to fetishize what killed him, I'm not sure if it would make for a better movie, but I believe it would make for certainly a more emotionally rich one. And yeah. um, I also think Hunter is the best in the movie in terms of taking this very dry dialogue and delivering it in a way that feels natural. There's this long scene of her in a car with Spader's character after their accident, and she's talking about how she started smoking again while recovering from the crash. And also earlier in the movie, Spader had spoken about how no- about noticing more cars on the road since his accident, and uh, like that traffic had increased. And he says something in passing about there being a lot of traffic and Hunter is immediately like, yeah, it's much worse now. Have you noticed that? <laughs> and it's Cronenberg like fleshing out the humans' self-destructive nature and obsessive fixations. Like he's, it's him again trying to make this kind of point and like flesh it out. But Hunter makes it feel like this particular woman is a very human response to a trauma too. And I think that scene is the, the best in the movie in terms of, I don't know, making you care about the characters while also the, focusing on the more grander themes of the movie. But, yeah, um, yeah, fa- yeah, a fascinating film, one that caused uh, a lot of uh, controversy upon its release, as, as can be expected, yeah. given the premise. Um, do you want to hit The Incredibles? A, a yeah, total sure. 180 shift. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Edna. I'd like to speak to Edna, please. This is Edna. E? This is Helen. Helen who? Helen Parr? You know, Elastigirl? Darling, oh. this is such a oh. long time after all. Oh. 
Yes, it's, 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 yes, it's been a while. Listen, there's only one person Bob would trust to patch a super suit, and that's you, Eve. Yes, 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 yes. Marvelous, isn't it? Much better than those horrible pajamas he used to wear. Huh? Well, I'll finish. When are you coming to see? Look, I'm calling Don't about... make me beg, darling. I won't do it, you know. Uh, no, I'm I'm calling about about suit about Bob about Bob suit. I'm calling about Bob suit. You come in one hour, darling. I insist. Okay, okay. Goodbye. In the Incredibles and its sequel, The Incredible Suit, Holly Hunter plays Helen Parr, aka Elastigirl, a former superhero turned stay-at-home mother after superheroes were outlawed. Bob Parr, aka Mr. Incredible, is played by Craig T. Nelson, her husband, leads a secret double life, moonlighting illegally as a superhero. Bob's new job as a superhero sees him captured by fan-turned-supervillain Buddy, aka Syndrome, who's played by Jason Lee, and Helen gathers her superpowered kids Dash and Violet to go rescue her husband. Basically, the reverse happens in Incredibles 2 with a different supervillain. Just on kind of Pixar and kind of the, those earlier Pixar movies, the most famous person in both of these movies is Samuel L. Jackson, which says a lot when you look at other Pixar films, except maybe Finding Nemo, because, you know, with Toy Story, you have Tom Hanks. Um, with Onward, you have Tom Holland and Chris Pratt, which seem like, which just seem like cash-in choices. You know, in Finding Nemo, it's Albert Brooks and a young unknown child. And, you know, there's Ellen DeGeneres' Dory, but whatever. And it just shows that animation really benefits from people experienced with using their voice as an acting tool rather than a script delivery system. And it benefits that The Incredibles are characters with distinctive personalities that often conflict with one another, whereas most of their superhero films have characters whose personalities consist of either quippy one-liners or outlooks so dark they'd be institutionalized in the real world. <laughs> and I think the, the Incredibles, despite being rubbery cartoon characters, feel more like real people than the superheroes played by real people we see in cinemas three times a year. And I think like it, it just shows in like the difference between like uh, Helen Parr and her and her alter ego, Elastigirl. Like it's subtle, but she's her southern Hunter's southern accent is a lot more reined in as Helen Parr except when she's angry and then it's a lot more pronounced when she's the last girl and similarly like Craig T. Nelson's uh, his voice is much more subdued when he's playing Bob Parr but when he's Mr. Incredible he's a lot louder and brasher and stupider <laughs> um, th- these are kids films at heart so it's often the kids Violet and Dash that save the day but um, Ellen Parr is a superhero in as both her ordinary self and as a last girl Mostly because she puts up with uh, the everyday bullshit wives and moms have to deal with, but also because she can stretch her body up to 300 feet. The fact that that Incredibles 2 came out in 2018 shows that there are still people like Brad Bird out there that know how to make superhero cinema feel fresh and exciting and new. Like, I think Taika Waititi's unique sense of comedy has been kind of absorbed into the Marvel house style after he made Thor um, 3, whatever that one was called. Ragnarok. Um, Ragnarok, that's the one, yeah. Uh, whereas, despite also being Disney products, The Incredibles and Incredibles 2 feel unique and somewhat apart from that dreaded House of Mouse, you know, conglomerate style. And just as a side note, I think it's very funny to think that director Brad Bird, who looks like a Harry Chew salesman in real life, uh, voices Edna Mode, the diminutive designer to the superheroes. <laughs> yeah, I was just listening to a podcast recently and they were talking about how The Incredibles is sort of the best Fantastic Four movie. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the powers might be different to yeah. a certain degree, but no, you're right, yeah. yeah. I just want to flag as well that Holly Hunter has done some pretty great TV work in the past few years. Yeah, we mentioned she was in uh, Jane Campion's series Top of the Lake in its first season, which she played an androgynous Swiss spiritual leader, and that, that show is on Netflix. And I've only seen the first season, but, it, but the first season is amazing. Um, she's also a regular on Ted Danson's sitcom Mr. Mayor, which yeah. was created by Tina Fey, which was surprising to me but uh, people are saying she's really good on it but um i just wanted to highlight her pretty great work in succession yeah which i think is probably the best show on tv right now and she showed up in the second season so for those who don't know about the show it's this comedy drama series that centers on the roy family led by patriarch logan roy who's played by brian cox uh, who are the dysfunctional owners of a global media and hospitality empire and i think one of the things that makes succession so great on top of its you know tiny themes and sharp just acid-toned writing is the chemistry between the actors within the Central Royal family, while the family itself is very toxic, the cast is so well chosen and bounce off each other beautifully and all the dynamics feel so rich. So when the second season of the show introduced a plotline about this outside figure, this kind of interloper who wormed their way into the Central family and played them off each other in a bid to seize control of the company, it had to be someone skilled enough to both 
nailed the distinct comedy tragedy vibe of succession while as well not upset the show's kind of ecosystem you know the, of the family and hunter is just inspired casting because not only can she be funny and dramatic but you totally understand why cox's character who is usually just so gruff and angry generally would be charmed by her you know the same with sarah snook his daughter you know typical cynical character how she could be taken in by her and you know watching hunter's character Rhea take these different approaches with every Roy family member to gain their trust only to later stab them in the back it was just succession at its most delicious scathing best and uh, the season season of succession Hunter was on was just a miracle run of episodes in that every one was better than the last yeah, I, uh, uh, I've watched the first three episodes of succession and I don't like it but it, um, it does it takes a while because it starts off and it's sort of like oh this show is kind of mean and unpleasant yeah, it, that's what, it's I, what I didn't like. <laughs> but there's a moment, kind of, as the season goes on, where you're like, you sort of see why all the characters are that way, and it kind of becomes more tragic. I do. It's... Okay, well, well, we'll agree to disagree. All I'll say is, oh, Mr. Spinach, King of the Leaf. <laughs> oh, he's so good in the show. Uh, <laughs> Matthew McFadden. Will we wrap up? Yeah. I think, before we go, I just wanted to let viewers know that... The I Hunter has become The Haunted. Sorry. <laughs> um, before we go, I just wanted to let viewers know that I know that it's taken some time off. Uh, we will not be putting out regular character act episodes for the next month and a bit. Uh, myself and Andrew are going on, at least for me, a much needed summer break. Mm. So uh, we'll be back around mid August. Uh, that said, I may be dropping one or two special bonus interview episodes over the break. A, a pretty big interview I did should be going up a few days after this one, so people can. Keep an eye for that wherever they get their podcasts. Rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Email iknowthefacepod at gmail.com if you'd like to reach out to the show. Follow us at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to Shani Fernandez for editing and for running our socials. If you love the show, please consider donating a five-year month to us through Headstuff Plus, where you can find special exclusive bonus episodes. Andrew, where can people find more of your work? You can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section, where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it. Find me at the Headstuff Film section, and you can find me at joe.ie. See you later, Cinephiles. Bye-bye. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. 